Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. This week, we have two more portions to wrap up the book of Leviticus, and then next week, we'll start in the book of Numbers. So, but this week, the, the portions are uh, Behar and Bahukotai, which is in the mountain, and then also in my statutes. We're going to spend uh, the majority of the time focused on the first of the portions. Uh, and the first portion, Behar, deals with laws of the Shemitah and the and the Jubilee year, or the Yovel. So we'll talk about uh, some of the aspects of these and and how we can how we can find Yeshua in them and then what uh, some things to glean for for us in these observances. So we're going to start out in Leviticus 25 verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses or said to Moses on Mount Sinai, speak to the sons of Israel and tell them when you come into the land which I give you, then the land is to keep a Shabbat to the Lord. For six years you may sow your field, and for six years you may prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there is to be a Shabbat rest for the land, a Shabbat to the Lord. You are not to sow your field or prune your vineyard. You are not to reap what grows by itself during your harvest, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine. It is to be a year of Shabbat rest for the land. Whatever the Shabbat of the land produces will be food for yourself, for your servant, for your maidservant, for your hired worker, and for the outsider dwelling among you, even for your livestock and for the animals that are in your land, all its increase will be enough food. All right, so here, this passage speaks of the land having its rest, and that uh, for six years you may plant and plow and harvest, but the seventh year the land has a has a rest, and the produce of the land is not just for the owner of the land, but for all of the people. And this tells half of what what happens during the Shemitah year. Uh, The other, in Deuteronomy 15, also speaks about the cancellation of debts during this time. Now, this command was given for, well, I mean, it's given for multiple reasons, but it's given as a rest for the land, and it's also a rest for the people that they could shift their focus during the seventh year from all of their their work in production on the land to spiritual endeavors more so. So it was a, it was a shifting where normally you're pr- pursuing the natural uh, needs and the material aspects. Um, not not neglecting spiritual, but then in that seventh year, you get to put more focus onto the spiritual endeavors. Now, this this command uh, was not often upheld in the history of Israel. In fact, the first temple was destroyed uh, for one reason, so that the sand, so that the land could have its Sabbath rest, and that was spoken of in Jeremiah thirty four seventeen. I believe I have that here where it says 
Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me to proclaim liberty, everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty, proclaim for you a liberty, declares the Lord, to the sword, to plague and to famine. So I'll make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And so it was in that that uh, Jeremiah was prophesying a coming exile. And we saw in, we, we do see in Second Chronicles and elsewhere in Jeremiah that the exile, the, the length of the exile was tied to the number of years that the land needed to have its Sabbath rest. <clears throat> and the thing is, observing the Shemitah is, is a difficult thing. It's something where you have to, well, one, you have to figure out how does it really work and, and how do you do it. Um, where you're canceling debts and you're not working the land and you're trusting God that he is going to bring the provision in the sixth year such that you can have enough to eat in the seventh year and eighth year while you're waiting the, the new harvest. And so the people weren't, weren't good at doing that. And that, that resulted, that was one por- portion of the reason exile came. So clearly the Shemitah was an important aspect in God's view of remembering the Sabbath, remembering the creation, and also sanctifying the land that belongs to God and and loving your neighbor by canceling debts and taking a yoke of, of burden off of them so that they can move forward and, and not be uh, not be burdened by, by large amounts of debt so they would become impoverished. So it's a new start. Now, it was in every at the end of every seventh year that the debts would be canceled. <clears throat> and so, okay, so for six years you plant and you harvest, but then in the seventh year you don't plant. And then it's at the end of the seventh year when the, the debts are canceled. So it's, it's kind of at the end of that redemptive year that the debts are canceled. And in Deuteronomy 15, the Lord admonished the, the children of Israel that they would seek to honor their bro- their brothers and still support people who were in need. Because, say, if it's the first year of the seven year, of the seven year period, it might be easier for you to loan to someone, thinking, "Well, I'm likely to be repaid in the next six years." But if it's year six and you have a brother in need and you loan to him. Or if it's in the seventh year and you loan to them, there's not much time for you to be paid back. You're actually at a high risk of having that debt canceled and just being out the money. So the Lord addresses that in Deuteronomy 15, 9 through 11. He says, watch yourself so there is no unworthy thing in your heart saying, the seventh year, the year of canceling debts is near, and your eye is evil against your poor brother and you give him nothing. Then he may call out to the Lord against you and it will be a sin upon you. You must surely give to him and your heart is not to be grieved when you give to him. For because of this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in every undertaking of your hand. For there will never cease to be poor people in the land. Therefore, I'm commanding you, saying, you must surely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. So in this, the Lord's saying, no, don't look at what your eyes see with regard to your potential material loss or material gain. Instead, uphold my commandments, uphold compassion toward your brother and give them what they need 
And the Lord who sees that will bring honor to you, will give honor to you, and you will benefit in ways that you that you can't see, and in ways that that uh, that the world wouldn't be able to understand. And so, with this, you know, the the Lord also in in Leviticus twenty five, you know, when He promises to provide, He's He's telling His His people that even though they're doing this thing that looks like that that is counter to the ways of the world or the, or the counter to the laws of nature that he is going to make a way and so they need to be able to see with with confidence and trust in him faith in him to provide as, as michael said to be faithful through all the generations right um and to trust in his goodness and then continuing on from the shemitah the portion then goes into speaking about the jubilee year in Leviticus 25, 8 through 13, he says, You are to count off seven Shabbatot, which is uh, sevens of years, seven times seven years. So that the time is seven sevens of years, or 49 years. Then on the tenth day of the seventh month, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, you are to sound a shofar blast. You are to sound the shofar all throughout your land. You are to make the fiftieth year holy and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It is to be a jubilee to you when each of you is to return to his own property and each of you is to return to his family. That 50th year will be your jubilee. You are not to sow or reap that which grows by itself or gather from the untended vines. Since it is a jubilee, it is to be holy to you. You will eat from its increase out of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you will return to his property. All right, so the Jubilee year has additional blessings for the people above and beyond just the regular Shemitah. So the Jubilee, okay, so back kind of the Shemitah, you had six years of work, and then the seventh year was a year of rest. You do that seven times, and then once those seven sevens are complete, then on the 50th year, you sanctify that as the Jubilee year, and it becomes another year where you don't sow or or uh or harvest as you normally would instead just the land produces and and uh the the produce is shared but in addition okay so and then also like the seventh year debts are canceled all right but then additionally this year slaves go free um normally uh, a slave would serve for six years and go free in the seventh year and that was not that was not tied to the Shemitah, to my understanding. But there was six years of, of of service, and then the seventh year they would go free. But in the Jubilee year, it didn't matter if a slave had worked for six years. If they'd only worked one year, they would still go free in the Jubilee year. So the, their time of servitude was cut short. And then additionally, if anyone had become impoverished such that they had to sell their land, in order to survive, then they could act. They their land would come back to them automatically. Okay, so the Torah gives instructions on on how ancestral land is to be sold. It's to be sold not in perpetuity, but only according to the number of years that remain until jubilee. How many crops will be produced? So when someone was buying the land, they weren't uh, buying the land as we do today, where our land is. You know, you buy it, you have the deed, 
until you sell the deed to someone else. In this case, someone would buy the land and then they would work it and they would produce the crops on it and they would receive the income from that. But ultimately, the land did not belong to them. It would go back to those to whom God had given it. Um, and so the the year of Jubilee was a major reset of everything that had gone on. It was a wiping out of, of past really failures and misfortune. And it was, it was a new start for people with debts canceled land back to them. If anyone in their, like if anyone in their family had been sold as a slave, they got them back. And yeah, it was, it was a beautiful picture of, of redemption and of restoration. Okay, and I'll, I'll read here in Leviticus 25, verses 14 through 17. Actually, this is what I just spoke about. If you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you are not to wrong one another. Corresponding to the number of years after the Jubilee, you are to purchase land from your neighbor's hand. He is to sell it to you based on the number of years of crops. In proportion to the extent of years, you may increase its price or decrease its price in proportion to the fewness of years because he is selling a number of harvests to you. You are not to cheat one another, but fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Okay. And then actually, sorry about that. There was a verse I was going to go to, but I don't have it in here. Let me flip to that real quickly with, Continue on Leviticus 25, verse 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, and you are sojourners and residents with me. In the entire land of your ancestral heritage, you shall provide redemption for the land. If your brother becomes impoverished and sells part of his ancestral heritage, his redeemer who is closest to him shall come and redeem his brother's sale. If a man will have no redeemer but his means suffice, and he acquires enough for its redemption, then he shall reckon the years of his sale and return the remainder to the man to whom he had sold it, and he shall return to his, to his ancestral heritage. But if he does not acquire sufficient means to repay him, then his sale shall remain in possession of its purchaser until the jubilee year. In the jubilee year, it shall leave and return to his ancestral heritage. All right, so what the Lord was laying out there was the means for a person to be redeemed or to to be brought out of his misfortune by his closest neighbor closest relative that is so really for a person to sell their land or for their family to be sold as slaves they had to come into great financial hardship it would be you know, people weren't just selling the land in order to to gain profit. It was in an or, it was in order to preserve themselves. So, if someone had become impoverished, they were in in terrible debt. God gave them a way to have uh, their honor preserved, to sell their land, to not go to the point of pure poverty, right? And then within that, if there was a relative close by who could redeem the land for them that neighbor that relative was to come do it 
in order to preserve the person to support them so that they could continue on and continue to produce crops and work themselves back out. Now, now when this redemption happened, when a close, close relative came and paid off the debt that was owed, the, the person who had been redeemed would still uh, would then work for that closest relative and would serve him in order to uh, pay back what was what was done for them. But they would still do it from their land. And within some of the passages that we read in verse 14, the scripture said, you know, do not aggrieve one another. I think the passage that we read here um, was a little bit different than, than aggrieve. Um, in fact, it was, well, I don't see it here, but, but the idea was that it was, it was stated twice, do not aggrieve. And then it says, you shall not aggrieve your brother. So when you're selling the land, the, the first, the understanding of the first command not to aggrieve was that you would have an honest business dealing. And then the, the second one was that you would not shame the other one through bringing about any kind of public uh, mention of past failures and things. Diego, what, uh, did you have a question or have something you wanted to add? No, that was from the beginning about uh, Psalm 118. Sorry. Yeah, I'm not very good at seeing that hand over there to the right. <laughs> Eventually I see them. So, but thank you for catching me on that earlier, by the way. It was a good thing. Um, but okay, so, so the idea was there, there, were, there were two ways that God was saying to uphold each other. One is being, again, being honest in the dealing of the sale of the land. Right, the one who is selling the land shouldn't be trying to extract more from the one buying it, and the one buying it should not be trying to take advantage of the impoverished person by paying too little for the years of the harvest. So they're to give honor to one another. Uh, the one for uh, the one who's selling for being preserved through the purchase, and the one who's purchasing and being uh, blessed in, in receiving the harvest and being able to support. Uh, to support the one who's impoverished. But I think the a real key in the second in understanding of the do not agree with one another and, and not bringing up the past failures or in shaming the person for the state that they've come into is part of the key about what the Shemitah and Yovel, Yovel being Jubilee, is really all about. It's about giving people another chance even when things haven't gone right. It's a reset. It's a time to give grace. It's a time to receive grace. And it's a time for burdens to be lifted. It's, it's a time for the, the captive to go free, the one who's been captive to failures, to financial hardship, uh, to be put back on their feet and be given honor and be able to, to walk out and start anew. <clears throat> and... Within all this, you know, the scripture said, the Lord said, all the land is mine. And he said to the children of Israel and all the inhabitants, he said, you're, you're strangers and residents with me. 
And that, that struck me. But he said to his own people, he said, you're strangers and residents, you know, strangers and those who dwell with me. It's very similar to the idea of, you know, within uh, within the nation of Israel, right? The, the people of the covenant, God's chosen people, then there were strangers and residents who would dwell with them. There were people who would become proselytes and become attached to the Jewish people and become part of the nation. And then there were Gentiles who were the strangers who dwelled among them and who had, who had taken on uh, the Noahi laws, who were seeking to honor God and to follow after him, but without becoming part of the nation. Very much where God was saying, look, all this land is mine. All the earth is mine. I've chosen you as a special people to the to the children of Israel. But he was also saying, you know, it's as though you're a stranger to me, but you've come and you've become a part of me. And now you're dwelling in my land and I've given it to you to manage it. And I've given it to you as an inheritance as part of the covenant promises. Um, but even within that, this, it's part of his faithfulness part of his faithfulness and his call for those who have come unto him, who have come into covenant with him, then to walk according to his ways because they are those who've come to dwell with him, right? There's those who have been brought near through the covenant and now they're commanded to walk according to his ways, to uphold his commandments, to uphold his statutes and his judgments. So what happens is through doing that, the children of Israel become like him, right? And those who are attached to Israel, who are following and keeping the commandments and upholding God's ways are becoming more like him. Um, and it just recalled the mind about Yeshua saying that a, a teacher or a, a disciple when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. And so here God is calling his children to observe his ways and become like him so that they can dwell in prosperity on the land and to receive the the blessings of the covenant where they will receive their land, where they will receive the bounty of the land such that even when they don't plant and harvest in that seventh year, they'll still have enough out of the provision of God's hand. But God's design all in all with setting the Shemitah in place and the Yovel in place was to give the picture of these complete redemptions where no one would remain in poverty, but they would always have a redeemer for them. Now, his first choice in what we read in the scriptures here was for the redeemer to come from his close relatives, to come from his brothers, right? So in that, I mean, we know that God is the only true redeemer, right? And that we've been redeemed through Yeshua, and Yeshua is the only redemption for everlasting life. But then here on this earth, God has given man to provide a redemption for his brother, right? Where we then get to partner with God in that redemption and in that upholding our brothers. And so that's what was was given with every seventh year of the Shemitah. And then at the completion of the seven sevens in that 50th year, there was an additional redemption that was actually taken care of by God, right? Because it there was no need for a kinsman redeemer in that 50th year to come and pay off any debt because God paid off the debt. Now, but he, he paid off the debt through people 
being willing to submit to his commandments and say, okay, you said to wipe out the debt and to return people's land to them. We're going to be obedient and we're going to do that through the provision that you've made. And then knowing that even though there may appear to be a financial hardship as a result of doing it, that the blessings that are received from God, whether in this life or in the world to come, will do more than compensate for any material loss in the here and the now. Now, speaking of Yeshua being the Redeemer, I wanted to go to Luke 4. Luke 4, verses 14 through 22. Yeshua returned in the power of the Spirit to the Galilee, and news about him went out through all the surrounding region. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone was praising him. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been raised. As, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on Shabbat, and he got up to read. When the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He closed the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. All the eyes in the synagogue were focused on him. Then he began to tell them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your ears. All were speaking well of him and marveling at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. And they were saying, Isn't this the son of Joseph? All right, so Yeshua said he's there to proclaim liberty, right? And that is the same proclamation of liberty. It's the same wording that was used to proclaim the liberty that was being spoken of in the year of Jubilee. Now, it is unlikely, in fact, I don't even know that it's possible that that could have been a true Jubilee year. So Yeshua wasn't necessarily speaking about this is the Jubilee year, but he was speaking about how he was there to fulfill that the purpose of the Jubilee year in bringing restoration and, and freeing the captives and setting people free from debts they couldn't pay, right? Because the wages of sin is death, and there is no man who through his own righteousness can ever pay that sin, you know, the, the price of that sin, such that they would enter into eternal life based on their own merit. That's a merit that only Yeshua could pay through his perfect life and through his death and resurrection, right? And so Yeshua was saying that he was the one who was coming and bringing this, this spiritual jubilee, and he was initiating it for the people. Now, the, the Yovel, the, the word for jubilee, is actually uh, the word for ram's horn. It comes from the ram's horn, and it's speaking of the shofar that's, that's blown on that day of atonement. So when the 50th year begins, okay, all these years of the Shemitah were reckoned from the first day of the seventh month from Rosh Hashanah. Okay, so at the completion of that 49th year, we then began to go into the 50th year. And, and once we went into the 50th year, now we're in the year of Jubilee. And it was 10 days later that that Jubilee year was announced and proclaimed on the Day of Atonement when the shofar was blasted. And that, then it was affected that 
the land was given back to the people, that debts were canceled, that slaves went free. It all happened there on the Day of Atonement. You know, uh, which of course in itself gives gives beautiful imagery of us being set free and declared righteous on that day, right? Those who are who have, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life are sealed on that Day of Atonement, and and those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, of course, have eternal life. Um, now, in in addition. You know, we know that in the in the coming day, you know, that this this was marked with a shofar blast. Well, also the return of Yeshua is marked with a shofar blast, and we're all, of course always looking forward to that day of Yeshua's return and the initiation of the messianic era, when all the nations will be ruled under Messiah, and so we we greatly look forward to it. You know, right now we have uh, the spiritual redemption. We look forward to the establishment of the full establishment of the new covenant and walking in, in his ways. Um, and in the messianic era, you know, the children of Israel will be restored to their ancestral land. The covenant will be renewed. Sins are forgiven. And we have a year of Jubilee, right? Now, when we look at the Shemitah and, and the Jubilee, Right, right now, these aren't necessarily being practiced. There's there's some aspect of it being practiced in the land with, uh, from an agricultural perspective of of uh, letting the land rest, <clears throat> but these commandments really apply to the land. Um, but what do we, you know? Is there anything that we can glean from them, or can we could practice here where we are? outside of the land um, and having a time when these years uh, aren't, well, they're not proclaimed uh, as universally as they, they one day will be in Israel. And what was, what was striking to me on it was, was back to that reading that we just had in Luke four. Okay. So Yeshua was there and saying, I'm, I'm declaring that, this favorable year of the Lord has arrived, that the spirit of the Lord was upon him to set the captive free, um, to release the prisoner. And everyone was marveling at his words. And But in, in verse 22 of the passage, they said, but this is Yeshua, who, whose father we know. You know, isn't this the son of Joseph? Well, what, what the scripture followed up with on this In Luke four twenty three, Yeshua said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. And so those, those following verses give us a little insight into what was going on in the people's minds as they were listening to him speak. Right here, he had come into the synagogue as his, as was his custom. He was given the honor of coming up and doing the last uh, Torah portion reading, um, which the the person who came up and did the last Torah portion reading also read the the Haftarah, which would have been which is what that reading in Isaiah would have been on that day. 
So Yeshua had come up and he had read the last few verses of the Torah portion, and then he had read the Haftarah, and then he sat down to teach, which was an honor giving, given to, the, to a visiting rabbi. So he was given the honor to come teach, and he taught, and they were marveling at what he was saying, but yet they, they were looking at him and saying, but this is Yeshua, the son of Joseph, who we know. You know, they were, they were seeing him. They were trying to reconcile how they saw him as common with the greatness that they were beholding. And it was that seeing him as common or remembering him as who they had known before was preventing them from really receiving who he was. And that's where he was saying, but you're going to say, hey, reprove yourself here in, in our midst because we know who you are. And we don't necessarily believe all the words that we're hearing about you. So he was rebuking them for not giving him honor and and requiring more of him. It's an interesting thing because in a way they weren't affording to him the release of their past conceptions of him and receiving what they were now beholding. Right. And so I was thinking about how much that plays into our lives and our walk, right? Because the way that we see people or what we have known or experienced from them in the past often colors how we see them today or even how we see who they'll become, right? And in that, we reject the freedom and the second chance and the new start that the people are afforded through Yeshua. And in that, I, I again I, I see there's there's an aggrieving of our of our brother and that the thoughts that we hold, the perceptions that we have toward them, um are are can be a shaming of who they are, especially if we if we utter that in public or if we color other people's opinions of our brother according to their past failures. Instead, I think what we're to do in this is we're to, just as we've received grace, as we've freely given, or as, as we've been freely given, we're to freely give. And in Ephesians 4, Paul talks about, you know, not letting any unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but to, you know, treat each other with compassion and to, uh, be be tender-hearted and kind to one another forgiving one another just as god through yeshua has forgiven you right and that's that's the basis by which we actually can can practice the spirit of the shemitah of the jubilee with one another um and i'm not talking about just like well every seven years i'll give you a reset <laughs> um but but rather saying you know what there's always a chance for redemption there's always a chance for people to have a new start. And are we going to be those who give that chance, who call forth that new chance and that, that redemption, that grace to people? Um, another way um, of doing it, of course, is, is through practicing helping our brother who's in need, right? Because part of this in, in helping our brother who's in need was not a, okay, every seven years you help out. It was during the whole course, every year 
being being looking for your brother who's in need and and helping them along the way. Now the reset and the canceling of those personal loans and private loans would would take take place every seven years, but the help, the assistance, um, what was always there. Uh, one of the one uh, one thing I, I read that was what I thought was really good advice was the aspect of you know, how do we help our brother in need? Is it that we just go give money or is it, are there other ways that we can do it? And some of the productive ways that I, I saw mentioned were like, okay, if you see someone struggling in business, how about counsel them, sit down and strategize with them on new ways of, of uh, capturing opportunities or of creating efficiencies such that you're actually teaching them better ways of carrying out business, of of uh, of being profitable, that's a great aspect in in how to do it, or in structuring the the uh, the the assistance in the form of a loan. Of course, a zero interest loan, where it's uh, it it holds it, it gives accountability, it gives support while also giving accountability, and carrying out a a relational aspect of, of walking out that loan. So anyway, there, those were some some great, great things that I, I thought uh, were presentative ways that we could carry the, this out today. Um, I do know in in the past we had a good while ago. I don't know how many years ago we had given a loan to someone to help them them get a car. And when the when the uh, Shemitah year came, we wiped out the remaining balance. I don't remember any of the details of you know what the balance was or anything like that. That's not the point. It was, we saw the year come up with the Shemitah and we said, you know what, on, on the principle of how this was handled, um, we're going to go ahead and wipe that out. And so we blessed the person in it. And, you know, uh, I don't share that as a, any kind of a, a praise of what we did, but rather just it's an example of, of something that could be done. And then, of course, we leave it to the Lord to say, how's he going to, how's he going to handle it? whether in this life or the next. Um, but again, the, the purpose wasn't for that. The purpose was to carry out uh, really the intent of what God was looking to do in in blessing people and, and helping them in the way. So it even resets our mindset of saying, well, what is it that really matters? Is what really matters um, every dollar that we can earn? Or is it really in, in how we can uh, love and serve our brothers around us? It, it helps us get off the materialism track and get on to this uh, support and helping one another. Now, hey, Chris, speak, yes. Sorry, real quick. Um, just wanted to, to throw in. I, I like I like what you're talking about tying tying in this aspect of the jubilee year and really this counting this cycle of you know and relating that to forgiveness and not only forgiveness but you know, how we view people in this reset that the Lord gives consistently in our walks with him. And, you know, I just thought it was fitting to mention that Yeshua in relation to forgiveness, you know, he's asked, how often should I forgive my brother? And he says 70 times seven, which, you know, was an idiom for like really forever. But I just thought that that it was cool. It's, It's really kind of this picture of I know it's not quite seven times seven, but it's this aspect of this counting in those cycles. And so really seems to me even there that he was relating this back in, in one aspect or another to, to the Jubilee. 
I thought that that was worth mentioning. Yeah, thanks, Michael. That's that's excellent. I I, I think you're definitely on on onto something there with that connection because I think that would have stirred in someone's mind because again the cycles of seven. Uh, I think it would have would have pointed people back to that. That's really good. Um, you know, also I I believe that within the whole jubilee, the counting of the seven sevens and then sanctifying that fiftieth year is also tied to what we're doing even right now with counting the Omer leading up to Shavuot, right? Again, it's another time where we have seven periods of seven, right? In one case, it's referring to weeks. Um, in the other case, it's referring to uh, years. But again, it's still, there's a sanctification of the 50th after this counting of 49. And so within that, I wanted to re read from Leviticus 26. Oh, you know, actually, one thing before we before we go to Leviticus 26, um, I wanted to just say one more thing on the aspect of, you know, kind of how we see things. In Matthew 16, 21 through 23, that was part of our other gospel reading. For this week, it said, From that time on, Yeshua began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and ruling priests and Torah scholars and be killed and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Never, Master, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of men. Now, I found that you know, that, that, that's always a striking passage, right? Because Yeshua was calling Peter an adversary in that moment, in that moment, even though if you looked at this and someone was saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go up here to Jerusalem and the priests and, this, and the scribes, they're going to uh, torture me and put me to death. <clears throat> you know, most people would say, well, God forbid that that should ever happen, right? Because that sounds terrible and a horrible thing. And so may it never be, may we, you know, may we nullify your words and may rather you be blessed and find favor and go and rule as Messiah and we'll all be under your reign, right? King Yeshua. I mean, that, that would be a, a great response, but Yeshua didn't see that response as being good and actually saw it as being an adversary because Peter wasn't seen as according to the will of the Lord, right? He was seeing as man sees, you know, and so again, you know, I feel like that ties into this whole idea of Shemitah and being able to say, okay, I'm going to do things that are counter to nature, counter to what I see, you know, because what I, what I, what I see in the physical is if you don't work, you don't eat, right? But God's saying in the seventh year, don't work and yet you will eat, you know, so not trusting in the things of man, but trusting in God. And that's actually part of our, our half for a portion uh, from, from Jeremiah this week was that blessed is the man uh, who's, who trusts, whose trust is the Lord, right? And that that man will be uh, like a tree that extends its roots by the river and, and receives all the nourishment that it needs. And so, it's, it's too easy for us to fall into the trap of, you know, going based on how we think things are going to work or in, again, seeing people according to their past as opposed to 
calling them forth and edifying and saying, look, there's a new beginning. There's a new start. And, uh, and there's, there's a new beginning. There's a reset according to God's desire. Ultimately that, that all should have a redeemer. And did you know, even thinking on that, you think about the kinsman redeemer who, when he sees his brother in a poor financial state, the relatives are actually supposed to go and help before the person becomes so destitute that they have to sell their land. But then if they do have to sell their land, they're still called to go and, and redeem. And that redemption, the, the call for that to happen is as soon as possible. It's not, uh, it's not about, it's not tied to, you know, that seventh year. So if you think about the kinsman redeemer who comes in and gives this financial assistance, to bring the person and bring them back up on their feet. Well, if we take it and and look at it from the this the spiritual side and say, well, here's a brother who's stumbling into sin, right? Well, a kinsman redeemer, his brother is to come to him and say, no, no, that's not who you are. Turn from that and walk in righteousness. Let's let me help you come out of that uh, state of fallenness out of out of this. Uh, you know, out of this loss and be restored. And so we do that with words, you know, sometimes of correction, of rebuke, um, but also of exhortation, right? And we help people get back on their feet before they fall and collapse, right? Now, there may be a time that uh, that they that they don't heed and they still collapse as, as you know, and sell their heritage as though it were, you know, like just trying to make a parallel here between the aspect of selling land with someone who, uh, falls and suffers great loss, but there's still the chance to come and as brothers call them out of that place and help them to come up and not to, and to really break off that yoke of slavery to sin from them so that they can walk free. And then still counting on that Jubilee year, that salvation and redemption through Yeshua to be that ultimate redemption for them. So, um, all right, so when we're faithful and when we're walking in, in God's ways, then we pick up in Leviticus 26, 1 through 13. He says, the Lord says, You are not to make idols for yourselves, nor raise up an engraved image or a standing stone or place any carved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You are to keep my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes, keep my commandments, carry them out, then I will give you rains in their season. The land will yield its crop and the trees of the field will yield their fruit. Your threshing will last until grape gathering. The grape gathering until the last will, will last until the sowing time. You will eat your bread to the full and live securely in your land. I will bring peace in the land and you will lie down with no one making you afraid. I will remove dangerous beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land. You will chase your enemies and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase 100 and 100 of you will chase 10,000 and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. I will turn toward you, make you fruitful and multiply you and I will confirm my covenant with you. You will eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul will not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you will be my people. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you forth out of the land of Egypt. 
so that you would not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk upright. All right. So God's talking about the, his faithfulness and that he's going to establish the covenant with them. So what covenant is he establishing? Well, he's looking forward to the messianic era and the establishment of the covenant of peace, the, the new covenant, right? And that's the, uh, the interpretation there. It goes in line with, with what Rashi was saying, that that was, that was looking forward to the messianic era, this establishment of the covenant for those who walk according to God's ways and, and seek him in faithfulness. And, you know, I mentioned that this time and the counting of the Omer and this counting of 50 is similar to the counting of 50 for the Jubilee year because the year of freedom and the return to the ancestral heritage, right, which is what the Jubilee is all about, is can be likened to the increase of covenant and the establishment of God's covenant of the new covenant because what's really happening is within that there's a return there it's a process of return to god and to the original relationship that god had with man before the fall it's there's a freedom from the yoke of slavery that comes through this establishment of the new covenant right because we're given a new nature. We're, ha- we're given the Torah written on our hearts so that we can walk and keep all of God's commandments. We're going into a new position of intimacy and relationship with him. And looking forward, of course, to the day of, of his dwelling with us and his sanctuary being in our midst. And, you know, Shavuot is, this t- is the time of covenantal increase. You know, in the wilderness, we saw the Torah was given and the children of Israel were taken as a bride unto God. In the time of Yeshua, after his ascension, the Holy Spirit was sent out on the disciples there at Shavuot as a sign of the initiation of the new covenant. And and so here we are, you know, we're again, we're in this time of counting up the days. We're in this time of the bride preparing herself for a covenantal increase. And um, it's, it's the same, same kind of viewpoint of, or at least there's a parallel between the Jubilee and Shavuot. So we haven't come to that place of the complete establishment, but we're working towards it. And part of the, the working towards it is continually having this remembrance placed before us by the Lord of the works that he has done. You know, every Sabbath is a remembrance of the exodus from Egypt, right? And that's that's what we say uh, Friday night in our blessings. The Sabbath is the beginning day of the holy convocations, the remembrance of the exodus from Egypt, right? And it's a it's a breaking off of the yoke. It's a redemption. It's a it's a new life. Now, within the Shemitah, I mentioned before that it's a it's a remembrance of the Sabbath as well, because six years you labor on the seventh seventh year you rest. Now, at the end of the seventh year, there's a public reading of the Torah, or actually it's of the book of Deuteronomy. And this is prescribed in Deuteronomy 31. In Deuteronomy 31, 
The scripture says, Then Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years and the set time of the year of canceling debts. Right? So in the set time of canceling the debts, after seven years, after that seventh year, the Shemitah year, the debts are canceled. At this time, during the Feast of Sukkot, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord, uh, before the Lord your God in the place he chooses, you are to read this Torah before them in their hearing. Gather the people, the men and women and little ones, and the outsider within your gate, within your town gates. So that's like the stranger who dwells among you. So they may hear and so they may learn, and they will fear the Lord your God and take care to do all the words of this Torah. So their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God all the days you live on the land that you are about to cross over the Jordan to possess. All right, so so every seven years, well, okay, so I'm sorry, let me back up just a little bit. You know, there are three pilgrimage festivals where all the males who are 20 years and up are to come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. But then every seventh year, everyone is called, everyone who's in the land is called to come up to Jerusalem for, for Sukkot <clears throat> after the Shemitah. So then it's at that time after the, the debt has been canceled um, and now everyone's there to hear the Torah read so that they will hear the words of Torah, be reminded of them, have this remembrance placed before them so that they will then walk in it. And it's not just... Uh, the moms and dads, right? The scripture says that the men, the women, and even the small children, and even the stranger who dwells among you is to come and to hear the Torah read, which is which is a great thing, right? Because even the stranger who dwells among Israel has responsibilities to uphold God's words and to live according to his ways. <clears throat> and it, it, it's likened unto what the uh, the council of jerusalem told the the, the messianic believers the the gentiles who had come to faith in yeshua saying that every sabbath you know you're going to hear moses read in the synagogue and they were saying you know within that even there's there's a picture of hey you are a part you you are now a part of the commonwealth of israel you need to be hearing the torah such that you can uphold the torah and that you can walk according to God's ways and, and walk alongside uh, your Jewish brothers. And <clears throat> all this is part of what's needed for restoration to come, such that, such that uh, we can walk in faithfulness. We have to know the word so that we can walk in it. <clears throat> Ultimately, with this view of saying, okay, well, one day all the nations will sit under under King Messiah, right? At this time, when, when the Torah was read on that seventh year, it was actually the king of Israel who would sit and read the book of Deuteronomy aloud to the people. And the people were to sit and listen with awe as though they were hearing God speak from Sinai. So even in this reading of the Torah, there was this callback and remembrance of the redemption and the covenant that had taken place at Sinai. So it's all this, again, just everything pointing back and saying, remember from where you've come, but look also look forward to what is coming and God's promise of his faithfulness to the nation through the years and looking forward to the day as Zechariah speaks of 
when all nations will come up to Jerusalem at the time of Sukkot. And when it, when it says that all nations will come up at the time of Sukkot, they will all be under the reign of Yeshua. And they'll be coming to the king to hear the Torah read from the king, right? In, in our scriptures, they, they speak about uh, the Torah going forth from Zion. And here we'll, we'll look at that here briefly. In Micah 4, says but at the end of the days the mountain of the lord's house will be established as chief on the of the mountains and will be raised above the hills people will flow up to it then many nations will go and say come let us go up to the mountain of the lord to the house of the god of jacob then he will direct us in his ways and we will walk in his paths for the torah will go forth from zion and the word of the lord from jerusalem so imagine that, you know, all nations going up to Jerusalem to see King Yeshua enthroned, to see King, to hear Yeshua reading from the Torah so that we may hear and obey. And uh, it's an incredible thought to think of all the nations coming under his rule and seeing that restoration when no longer do we say, well, the Shemitah is not really observed uh, as it was designed to be or that the the jubilee year isn't taking place the way it should be but but that god through yeshua is showing us how to walk and how to carry these things out and that everyone has that torah written on their hearts and is walking in the ways of the lord encouraging one another strengthening one another and uh in the meantime of course us all doing that together giving wholesome words from our mouths encouraging one another uh, with grace and love. Amen. Um, did anybody else have anything that, that you wanted to share? Any thoughts, questions? Yeah, um, I was just thinking about the um, the Shemitah and then also the Jubilee year and the observance of or lack, lack thereof of observance um, in our days now. And I understand the aspect of, you know, just like the, the Sanhedrin's not in place to verify the sighting of the moon and to sanctify the moon. We're on a fixed calendar because of that. And I just wonder why, if we're on a fixed calendar in that regard, why would we not fix the, Ju- the Shemitahs and the Jubilee years for observance? And again, I know that, you know, really... In, in the reading, it's like, well, there's certain observances uh, within these that are really specific to the land, but the people are back in the land, right, even now. And so I just wonder why in observance that, you know, there wouldn't be some level of observance there of the Shemitah. And even it does say that the 50th year that you are to, to sanctify right, or consecrate the 50th year for the Jubilee, but it doesn't say that about this every seventh year. It just says that this is a Shemitah. And mm-hmm. so even when the people didn't observe it, God made sure that the land got the rest that it was due, like you like you mentioned in the um, in the exiles, that they got, the, the land got the rest that it was due. And so um, even without, you know, the structure being in place to, to sanctify the 50th year, the seventh year from, from what I can tell is still the Shemitah. And so I'm just curious, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that, um, why there wouldn't be any level of observance 
there even now with the people being back in the land? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so with it right now, what I've what I've seen is it, it looks as though the consensus of when the Shemitah is, is um, the next one will begin in the fall of 2021 and end in the fall of 2022. Uh, so the Shemitah is seems to be pretty consistently stated of, of what year it should be. But then the observance of it in Israel is dependent on really what the view of the different communities are. There's not a standardized way in which it's uh, handled or carry out, carried out. Um, so that, that, that's at least from what I've seen. And so it is just, it just does, does just happen. Um, but not everybody does it. And part of the reason why not everybody does it is because all the commandments around the Shemitah seem to, well, according to the Talmud, uh, the majority of the children of Israel have to be in the land for the laws to apply. Now, I'm not trying to say what what is, you know, the correct way of doing it or not, but that is one of the interpretations of the Shemitah and Jubilee laws, as well as the Jubilee year having to be sanctified by the Sanhedrin, because again, that was, as, I think as you noted, that it says, you shall sanctify. It didn't say, because uh, when he was saying, speak to the children of Israel and do the Shemitah, but then he, and that's in the plural, but then it switches gears and says, you shall sanctify, speaking to Moses of you shall, you shall sanctify the 50th year. Um, but that's my understanding as to what's going on right now, why the Jubilee is not sanctified, is there's not the Sanhedrin in place. And then the Shemitah is that there's varying opinions of how it should be done, whether it should be done, and so forth. But yes, I, I would say that, um, I mean, there are groups who are giving the land rest during the seventh year in Israel. And tw the year 2050 would technically be the next Jubilee if it were to be sanctified according to, um, like going back to, to when the last Jubilee was sanctified and moving forward from my understanding. Do you know if that's right? The What I've seen pretty consistently is that it's thought that 66 to 67 was the last Jubilee year. So the year that Jerusalem was taken back um, was a, you know, or that, they were, uh, yeah, during the, during the six day war, that was during the Jubilee year. And so, oh, okay. yeah, so with, go ahead. I, I was just, I was reading something on it this week that was talking about it being 2050, but again, I'm sure there's all kinds of differing opinions and reckonings, you know? Yeah. I, I think that's the thing. I, I don't, I don't know if there's a clear consensus of it, you know, as you noted, but, um, I seem to seem to have seen more references to 67 having been not the last one, because then that would have put uh, 2016 as the most recent Jubilee year, um, which would then put us more at the, uh, what would that 65, 2065 or 2064, somewhere around there as being the next Jubilee year. So still kind of a, a long ways off, but yes, yeah, so I, I don't think there's a, well, Maybe there's not absolute certainty as, as to what it is. Again, another reason why 
uh, they need that authority of someone to come in and say, okay, here's what it is. And now we're all on track and on the same page. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, there's a there's a legal aspect to it uh, that requires, you know, the dealing with the property and how much should it be returned and what should it be returned and and who's going to manage and handle all that. Uh, I don't think it's up to the individuals to just figure out, hey, my property value is this much. This is what you're getting. And then to find the actual regional owner of it is, is another challenge that requires legal authority to determine that. Uh, because if it's not just up to us, I'll be like, well, only my backyard is yours. <laughs> you know, and I'll just, you know, people can play their, their, their own tricks and apply their own ways. You know? So, yeah, there has to be some kind of consistent, uh, rulings i mean even in the in the torah it says that this whole right of or the ancestral heritage going back to a person only applies to land that's outside of a walled city right i mean um so what's what's a walled city in today's age you know perhaps there's no walled city you know or you know is it is that now uh likened to urban areas you know and so there there has to be some kind of ruling and establishment of here's how we're going to do it and it has to be consistent. So yeah, re-implementing it would would certainly not be uh, simple and couldn't be done without a clear ruling body uh, who would who would establish those. It's, I find it interesting and and important for multiple reasons, but you know, trying to determine when that would fall and you know, we know that the fall feast, the the return of Yeshua um, and, you know, the coming Messianic reign will be tied into the fall feast. And I just think it makes so much sense for his return and for a lot of these things to happen at the time of the Jubilee. Because even looking in chapter 25, when it talks about what happens at the Jubilee year, that's what Yeshua is coming to do. He's coming to proclaim liberty throughout the land and to all of its inhabitants, to set the land free, to set the people free, to set the captives free from their debts. And I just think it's a, it's a beautiful picture. And, you know, and just the fact that it's declared at the sound of the trumpet, you know, in the seventh month. And we know that Yeshua, Yeshua's return will be, you know, at the sound of the trumpet. And um, I just think it's a beautiful picture. And even the fact that that, that would happen at the 10th day, if Yeshua returns at Yom Teruah on the first of the month, he fights the battle on, on behalf of the people of Israel. And then 10 days later declares freedom over the land and victory. I just, I don't know. I like, I like thinking about these things, but I'm like, okay, that makes a lot of sense to happen, you know, at the time of the Jubilee year. So when is it? Yeah, I, I like to think of that too. But then if if the counting is right of 1967 and then 2016 and like 2064, 2065, then I kind of hope it's not at the Jubilee because I'd like it to be sooner. <laughs> so. Yeah, we'll have to, uh, have to figure it out. When when Yeshua comes back, we just like, all right, this is the year of Jubilee. And then we can start counting again. There you go. I was I was just an observation too, for me, just reading all this is how much honor God respected the people to have towards the land. Um, just the fact that 
God was like, I know you're my people, but this is also my land. And if you don't honor it, respect it and take care of it, I will kick you out so that the land can rest in the way that I have designed it to rest. And so that's just an observation of mine of two of, of how much honor um, are we providing land that we have ownership of? And so just, so, and just to take into effect too, there's, you know, of, of the people and then the land, you know, we are, as we like to say, agents of restoration and, you know, even the land and rocks cry out for the sons to, of God to be revealed. And, um, uh, I just thought that was just an interesting take as I was reading it. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that the sages teach that the world's supposed to last, uh, uh, 6,000 years, and then the seventh marks the beginning of the Messianic era. And in, in Genesis, uh, where it says uh, that the Spirit, that the Lord said, my spirit will not put up with human for such a long time, for their only mortal flesh, for their only mortal flesh in the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. And that word humans is Adam, which means mankind so is it's saying uh, the my spirit will not be with mankind for such a period of time. If you multiply 120 by 50, it's exactly 6,000 years. Yeah. Yeah. And this, the the Jubel the, the is every 50 years. So 50 times 120 is 6,000 years. <laughs> If you look at the year we are today, it's five, seven, eighty, five thousand seven hundred and eighty, and then we look at the loss of calendar that happens. I think during the Babylons, I think, and, and they lost about two hundred twenty years that were not included in the calendar. So we are technically five thousand nine hundred and ninety, which only leaves about 10 years left before we get into the 6,000 years, which is pretty wild. There you go, Chris, 10 years. I, I, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm okay with 10, you know. <laughs> Hi, Thea. Hi, I just wanted to share something kind of beautiful of how God honors whenever we read the scripture and I want to share a story about a farmer 40 years ago in Iowa. He was reading these scriptures and he said, God, I don't know exactly what this means and how it's going to look on my farm, but I'm going to do it. So Richard Thomas, he divided his land into three parts and every seventh year, one part of his land rested. And all he was doing was trying to honor the land and honor God. Well, he kept very close records and his yield of produce on those pieces of land that he let rest was so much greater than those he didn't let rest. And it became a lifestyle for him that pretty soon the professors at Iowa State came and checked out his farming process. And he had, they said, well, where did you learn this? And he took them to these scriptures. Then these people from China came. And so, and they were dear friends of ours. But I think what's so beautiful about that story is that all of us are at different places on the Emmaus Road. 
But yet, when we honor what we believe the Holy Spirit is telling us through scriptures, he is always faithful, always faithful to show us that his word is true. And so that's my little story of the day. <laughs> and, and with that, can I just add with her that um, it's great to have a global understanding and a date. But I think just as important when we enter into covenant, when we enter individually, enter into covenant, that begins our walk. So other words, if I have a relationship with the farming land or with housing and loaning and what have you, then that begins my seven-year walk, if you will, uh, uh, as far as honoring what is going on between me and my subjects, uh, if you will. So, so the um, we we can debate where we are in a big picture, but where you are individually with God and the covenant is most important that you observe, observe that between you and God and what you're doing. And as Thea said, uh, in the work. Amen. Yeah. And I, I think tied in with that, Bo, is that the idea of, you know, everyone was called to come and, and hear the Torah read, right? And everyone on Shabbat is to, to hear Moses read, you know, and, and, and to hear the words of Yeshua. And from that, then we take it and we we apply the word and we we live according to it to the best of our knowledge, best of our ability. And you know, the as you were mentioning, the the command to let the land rest was specifically in Israel, but then there was still this principle that could be applied outside the land that could still uh, yield uh, fruit out of that that came from the desire to honor the word and to honor the Lord. Right. So, yeah, wherever we are, we can be walking according to the ways and practices of the Lord. Diego? Yeah, and ultimately, I mean, the purpose is to fill the whole earth with his presence, with his kingdom. So from Israel, it goes out to the world. Uh, it says that, that, that in, I think it's in Zechariah where it says that the, that, that the knowledge of God will cover the air has the water you know, covers the air. So in his name shall be one. And, you know, all this prophecy about his kingdom being here on earth. It's, it's yes, we, the Torah does emphasizes the practices in the land, but it's, it's from there how it goes out. It's, it's like this, this, this seed that is planted, Israel being the seed and the whole earth being the branches that spreads out is, is for, for everybody, you know. Um, yeah. Amen. And Jeremy, do you have something? How is it that that, that, that we can, if we're, if we're not working the land, that we can apply these these to our to our lives today? So, okay, so you're saying if you don't, uh, if you're not like doing a garden or working your land, how can you still apply it? Yes. Okay. Well, so there's uh, the one way. If you think about the practical aspects of letting the land rest, if if you're thinking about someone who was was a farmer in the land of Israel and there was going to be a year where they weren't going to sow or harvest right much of their occupation much of the, what what took up their time is now free time and so what are they going to do with it well they're going to ideally 
uh, put more of their activities into spiritual endeavors, into uh, service opportunities, things like that. And so if we take that principle and say, in the seventh year, even though I'm not a farmer, what should what should the seventh year look like for me? How can I refocus some of my efforts, uh, perhaps away from my regular business activities to do more, say, service-oriented or uh, learning uh, or spiritual growth activities um, during that year? That, that would be one way. But yeah, we can't really actually just let our land rest. And then you wouldn't let your business rest. You know, you wouldn't shut down your business because the issue is letting the land rest, which your business is, if it's not tied to uh, agriculture, is, is not applied to it. Okay. At least that's my thought on it. I don't know if anybody else has an additional thought. You can, you can let our hair grow for three years, Jeremy, and then we'll come cut it after the Shemitah is done. Just kidding. Fantastic. But maybe in a business, an idea would be something like um, you're not advertising or like you stop doing marketing activities, like the growth. That's how a business is sewn into, right, or, or grown. Um that you would let it grow naturally in that seventh year from what you've sown in the previous. I mean, I'm sure you can come up with all kinds of creative ways to make that seventh year apply to your situation. And also I wanted to say what Thea was saying reminded me of the discussion we had about the calendar last week. Was that last week or the week before? Um, about how we may not have it right. So, like the man who was wanting to honor every seven years, what you said, Bo, that we may not have the big picture exactly on track with what the calendar should be. But when we're really seeking to meet God in his times, that he's going to honor that effort. And that's different than we're just trying to make God align with what's convenient for us or how we want the calendar lineup. But when we're truly sincerely seeking, like we want to know your times and we want to honor them, then I, he knows our heart in that and meets us there, even though our dates may not quite be right. Yeah, that's really good because um, that's an important factor too in just knowing, well, having our ultimate desire be to meet the Lord, to walk in his ways and to, and, and walking in his ways, meaning to follow his commandments, to to apply them to our lives to the best of our ability. And when we're seeking him, he's going to reveal more to us. He's going to meet us in that time. And we just have to keep our eyes open and, and be listening uh, along the way. So that's great. So Lord, we love you and bless you. Thank you for this time, for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, that you have a way of redemption, Lord, that your plan ultimately is for redemption and restoration, Lord, that's your desire to dwell with man, that it's your desire to draw us near. Lord, I ask that you would move in us and through us. Lord, I ask that 
we would be able to walk out these principles of the Shemitah and of the Jubilee in our in our daily lives, Lord, not just in the in the seventh year of uh, you know, wiping out debts and and things of that nature, but Lord, that we would be able to walk in the aspects of of helping our neighbor, of extending assistance to our relatives, to our brothers, Lord, that we would encourage each other uh, materially, spiritually, Lord, that we would strengthen one another and that we would continue to grow and to walk in your ways as you reveal more and more of your Torah to us. We give you thanks and glory in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.